right, we're back. Packy, how are you? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm great. I'm excited to continue the conversation here on really your role of decentralization and how it's reshaping our culture. But I want to get more specific because we have this belief in thinking, and I personally think a lot about how networks are central to our future here at XMTP Labs. And how do you think about the relationship between networks and decentralization? Yeah. I mean, I think networks are the kind of organizing principle of, you know, more decentralized world. I wrote this post yesterday on differentiation, which I didn't link back to this decentralization post, but I think actually is maybe just like the layer down. I talked a lot about how individuals are going to have to differentiate a lot more in in the world, like already online now to stand out, you have to differentiate and copying doesn't work. And I think that's true for startups as well. And you need to do hard things that only you can do. But I think that's about to get a whole lot more pronounced with the the rise of AI. Like AI does average really, really, really well. And so this picture that I had in my head, and I didn't make a graphic for it because I couldn't exactly figure it out, but is on one side, this like almost hierarchy where you're trying to do the same thing, but better. And there's always going to be somebody who's better at that one thing. And then there's a bunch of people who are trying to do that thing, but better. And then on the other side is this kind of like more disconnected, decentralized network of each person doing the thing that they're most curious about, best at. Like you're almost incentivized to be as weird as you possibly can. I called it being a mutant in the piece. You're almost incentivized to just be as weird as you possibly can. And then the the interesting thing I think is going to come when like all of those people or companies that are trying to do unique things are then networked back together, all kind of contributing more than they would have before when they were trying to do the same thing, maybe a little bit better. A lot of the ideas that I have in my head don't necessarily translate particularly well into words, but like it's a very clear thing that I'm picturing that I think there's going to just be a lot more richness when you can network all these people who end up doing one particular thing or a few particular things really, really well, and you can build really rich tapestries uh, from those different components. You should take your description at the beginning and put it into an image generator AI and see if it can make the image for you because you just explained what you want the image to be. Yeah, true. In the decentralization paper, though, you said what's most surprising about the internet isn't how much it's changed the world, but how little. I, I, I When I read that line, I was like, holy shit, that is powerful because it's such a big, juicy thing that kind of we can really discuss here. Tell us more about what you were thinking when you wrote that. Yeah. So there's this whole, you know, I don't know if you follow the, the progress studies movement and there's this whole website. WTF happened in 1971. But people who look at kind of like the history of progress, say from about 1870 until about 1971, we were actually making progress in the world. We built physical things. We used more energy. We had TVs and refrigerators and airplanes and cars and like all of these really, really transformative things. We globalized the world. We had, you know, shipping, sending products from one country to another country where competitive advantage made sense. And like the world really, really changed. And then in 1971, something happened and we got a lot less productive. We stopped making, you know, as many physical things. We have this computer and we're talking, uh, you know, across different cities. So the, the internet certainly hasn't done nothing. But given how much time we spend on the internet, it hasn't reshaped the physical world in like a really major, major way, right? Like most of our day-to-day -day experience, other than being connected to the internet, it's still pretty much the same as it would have been before those flying cars that, that we talked about in the last episode, like they're, they're still not here. Uh, and so I think when I said that the internet 
hasn't been as impactful as, as you think. Like that's, I think kind of what I was thinking of. Like, there's just a bunch of experiences that, uh, feel like they're, even if they're the most advanced things that we have now feel like they're very alpha compared to what the world will look like in 10, 20, 30 years, as I think the physical and the digital kind of come together a little bit more. Are there areas where you see physical and digital coming together that you think will create some interesting changes? Yeah. So, um, we're, I don't know when we're releasing this, but we're writing about a company that we invested in called Atomic AI and Atomic AI uses algorithms to figure out the structure of different RNA molecules to one, find druggable targets for those molecules. And then, uh, to actually design new RNA based therapeutics. And that's one of those things where like, that could be transformational on the world and we're able to, to target RNA in such a specific way it could, you know, potentially cure certain cancers and like do all these things where the people who are bemoan the fact that we wasted the last 50 years just focused on digital stuff would have missed the AI piece of that, that like then all of a sudden interacts with all the work being done in biology since, you know, the discovery of the double helix in the 1950s, those things will like kind of now come together to do things that without each side of it wouldn't have been possible before. So I think that's, that's one example of the kind of thing that I'm thinking about where Without the internet, without us saying dumb things online uh, and, you know, providing the, I guess, the fodder for these models to learn, we wouldn't be able to apply it to these like real problems that human brains alone wouldn't be able to figure out. That's fascinating. Do, do you have a view on how this applies to Web3 or kind of decentralized ownership or crypto specifically? I think in Web3, I wrote a piece at the beginning of last year uh essentially about the fact that I think a lot of the stuff that's happened in Web3 so far is this like almost toy semi-real world experimentation for the bigger things to come. So, you know, you can make fun of the fact that people are trading very expensive pictures of monkeys or that like there's all these failures in the system as people probably take on too much risk or whatever else. But there's all these really interesting primitives being built that now, you know, I talked about the company that's putting title on the blockchain. They're using NFTs in a way that the NFT and the picture on it isn't the valuable thing, but it's a really great repository for information. Or we invested in a company called Open Forest Protocol that is making uh, verification of forestation pro projects uh, possible at a scale that wasn't before. So if you had a Vera come in and verify, one, they'd fly an airplane to wherever in the world to then like verify that you're planting trees and good for the environment. So maybe there's something bad there. Now, anybody is incentivized to validate that the projects are actually happening. The trees are actually growing locally, which just means that you can fund a lot more reforestation and a lot more climate positive projects. And again, like all that data lives in an NFT. There's a lot of incentives built in based on the learnings from like some frankly dumb seeming products before and dumb seeming projects before. I guess if I had like one maybe philosophical point on this generally is like, I just don't think a lot of bubbles and work are wasted energy. I think there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of them that isn't obvious until it's applied in the future. And then even then, if you look back in hindsight, you're like, oh, that was silly, but it, it was, and it wasn't, I think it does kind of battle test for the bigger, more important things to come. And I think that web three will interact with the physical world in a lot of really interesting ways. I have a kind of, a general question about this that I've always been curious about, but I feel like you might have a strong opinion on, which is, do you think the everyday consumer will even know things are decentralized 
or will they actually choose things because they're decentralized? Hmm. No, right? Like I, I think, you know, the, the two, the two angles that I talk about, which is centralization and decentralization or better and worse, like it has to be decentralized and better because of it. It has to give you ownership in the sports team that you like watching because you've gone to a million games and you're a huge fan and whatever else. And like that is just superior to paying for a ticket and going to a game and not getting ownership, right? Like that's just a better thing. Uh, you know, if solar power is more expensive without government subsidies, but, you know, if solar panel costs you more money, there's going to be a few diehards who are like, screw it. I love the environment and I love what it says about me to put these solar panels on the roof. But most people are not going to adopt solar panels unless it's cheaper for them, if it's reliable enough, like all of those things. And so I think it needs to be decentralized and better because of the decentralization or because of some other thing uh, in order for people to adopt it. And the average consumer doesn't care about decentralization. Like I don't as a consumer care about decentralization. One analogy that always kind of clicked with me is I met people that were kind of in country clubs and they'd tell me they pay these crazy fees to join country clubs. And then there's this membership fee. And then seven years later, the membership fees are 10 X more and they leave. They don't want to pay the dues anymore. And that initial fee is gone. And for me that like, when I think about it's not crypto, but just the idea of decentralized ownership, where I should have been able to sell that membership 10 years later and accrued some of that value to that initial pass that I bought to the new person joining 10 years later is, is in essence what I see a lot of these kind of like decentralized uh, blockchains doing with membership and ownership. Um, it kind of changes that model where the value is shared amongst all the members, not the single central owner of that. Completely agree with that. And I think one of the ways that I've thought about this before is that if you designed a bunch of the systems in the world from scratch today, you design them in a way that I think a lot of crypto enthusiasts would want them to be designed. The members would have ownership of the clubs that they belong to. Um, and you know, you'd own your digital property and be able to take it where you want across the internet. Uh, you know, DAOs with all the challenges that they have, you know, I think there's there's something there and people will figure out governance models and incentive models that work. But having groups of people that can make decisions or incentivize to kind of help grow the community as opposed to just being kind of passive participants, like all these things, I think, just make sense and can be superior models. We just haven't had the the tools for them before. So I think if you were designing from scratch with everything that you have at your disposal today or call it two years from now, you design them in a way where people have kind of more ownership and upside and participation and all of that. It's just now because the system has been designed in another way, the shift feels like really big and radical and all of that when it's really not. I think if you just like kind of described the two different approaches, often the decentralized one would make sense. It's just a lot harder to coordinate and we didn't have the tools before. So I live in Nashville and I hang out with a lot of uh, people in the music industry. I'm curious how you would sell it. How do you go to a new creator, a new artist You spend time with lots of creators and, you know, they've been on Twitter since 2008. They've been building their audience. They've built their Instagrams. They just had to invest in TikTok. They've been doing that now. They're doing, they do so much work. And now you're like, Hey, this new thing, move your audience, come over here. What are you telling them to do? Why are you telling them to do it? How do you even think about the value or the effort so that in 10 years, it was worth it? That's a really good question. I don't think I 
do sell them and like I I wouldn't sell people on it, right? And like not boring is on Substack. And I have great, you know, the great thing about an email list is that it is kind of this decentralized thing that I can control and take away from Substack. But Substack isn't web three. And so I don't want to say like all of you creators should use web three tools in everything that you're doing. I'm not, but like all of you should. I think there's a lot of clarity that still needs to happen on the regulatory side. You know, I I, I wanted at one point to be able to give a little bit of carry to a DAO made up of the most active readers and not boring. And that was illegal for me to be able to do. So a lot needs to get worked out. What my advice would always be is to experiment. And if there are things that look particularly interesting in this world, to go just kind of start playing around. It might be tough with, with you know, certain people's contracts, but go mint something on Sound XYZ and try to sell it directly to your audience and offer unique fan experiences to them. Over time, think about how you can reward the people who own your music NFTs in, in ways that surprise them over time because you always have that kind of like just database essentially of the people who own those things. I think, you know, the, the Taylor Swift concert uh, debacle seems like a pretty good uh, opportunity to infuse NFTs into some things. So like, I think find the pain points that you have or find the areas that you're curious about and experiment. I would not say go flip your whole thing right now to Web3 because I don't think it's it's there yet. But I would say if you think it might be there or if there's something that, that sparks your curiosity, like go out and experiment with it. Yeah. And those with the curiosity who are early, if I've learned anything by watching every shift of audience paradigm over the last 15 years, there's massive value to those who figure it out before the rest of the world. I don't love the, you know, there's web two versus web three narrative. I think web three is, you know, there's been conversation recently about whether cryptocurrency or web three is better. I still like web three, but I don't love like anything versus anything really. I think there's benefit to being on the old platforms. I don't think you should go all in on any one new thing unless like you don't have an audience yet. And like, you just want to make that your one bet, but I wouldn't risk like a $10 million a year music business on just going all in on web three, but I certainly would try to experiment and find ways that I can do the thing that I'm doing better and build stronger connections with my fans than I might otherwise be able to do by using new tools. But if you look at web three and communications in web three, what is giving you pause? Like, what are you stopping and being like, Hmm, we probably need to think about this. I mean, I, there's, like just the very obvious one, which is, and I think it's happening naturally in a bear market, which is value needs to actually happen. Like you need to build things that are valuable for people beyond speculation. And I've at least in the pitches that I've seen, and even in the portfolio companies that we already invested in have been encouraged by how focused people have gotten on adding kind of real value to their users' lives. So I think that's a big one and we'll see more of it. And I think a big piece of what's coming next will actually just be that because all the easy wins are not there anymore, people are actually going to be incentivized to do the hard work to connect to real world assets and, and build real value. So that's like the broader thing that I'm excited about. But maybe like one uh, kind of thing that I'd love to see is just something that lets you identify and then communicate with the people who maybe aren't just part of the same NFT community that you are, but like seem to share interest based on the digital footprint that they've left and that they have in their their wallet. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that that can be done as people build more residue and paint a fuller and fuller picture of who they are in their wallets. And you can maybe build communities based on that and, and communicate with them that way. One big last question. So uh, a buddy of mine here in Nashville, his name's Jake. He's an artist. 
And I love when people outside of technology are excited about the new technology and new things and new trends. And he specifically messaged me about decentralization. He said, decentralization seems like it's quickly being learned that it's the most pure form of modern freedom. And I was like, whoa, like it, it kind of hit me as like, yeah, damn, that's a, that's a big statement. Um, and coming from someone, you know, that is a big thinker and really understands this, but is not in our little, you know, tech bubble, but sees something that big and that profound. I'm curious how that statement for you lands. I mean, I think the holy grail and like where it's, where it's all heading is that everybody can have kind of autonomy and freedom and control over the things that they do have ownership over the things that they should have ownership over without sacrificing all the benefits that you do get from centralized things right now. And that might be technology's goal over time, right? Is to get us closer and closer to that spot where you can get all the benefits of freedom and autonomy with all the benefits of, you know, the things that we get from, from, uh, institutions that we rely on today. So that, that resonates. I mean, I think that's right. I have no idea. It could be a thousand years in the future that we've gotten to a spot where you don't have to give anything up by going de fully decentralized. But I think that's probably like the North star where a lot of this is headed. Most of our lives have moved over the last 20 years online. And so as we've moved online and things became digital, we didn't own almost any of it. And everything we put online, we turned over ownership of. And so for that wave to come back to owning your communication, owning your assets, owning the like way in which you spend your time, owning your network uh, is just a fascinating shift to think about so that someone else outside of your control can't just change a rule or change a thing and everything you thought it was is completely different. One of the ways that I like to describe crypto is that it gives digital objects, physical properties. And like, it would be crazy to think that you don't own the things inside of your house or, you know, if you own your house or your house itself and that someone could just take it away. It was impossible to do that in the way that the, you know, the internet was constructed. And so like, again, nobody's to blame here. I don't think Facebook's evil because they, uh, you know, they control your photos or whatever else. But yeah, it, it feels crazy that you don't own your digital things. And as more and more of our time happens online, it will feel crazier and crazier and crazier that you don't own and have control over those things. And and I think with AI too, and this is a whole nother conversation, but the intersection I think of AI and crypto is going to be really, really interesting, particularly on the data ownership side of things as data becomes more and more important as you train models on yourself. And then is that just going to be owned by open AI and they need to give you permission to use your packing model. Like there's just a lot of weird stuff that's going to happen where I think it'll be clear that you want to own the digital representations of yourself and the digital objects that, that you use. How do you think decentralization and all of these issues around ownership are going to impact identity and privacy? I'm excited about zero knowledge proofs. I mean, I, I think that that's going to be, I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, primitive that people are going to be able to to play with on the privacy side. I, I just think generally. In and what is a zero lives, knowledge proof for everyone who doesn't zero, know what that is? Like, oh man. what is that to this? To really the terms? This is, this is one of the more, you know, the thing I've written, written about a couple of times that like, it's just hard to wrap your brain around, but it's a way to prove that you know something or own something without proving what that thing is. So an example or without saying what that thing is or giving any information about it away. So for example, you almost have to do like a full rectal search when you're going to buy 
uh, or even lease an apartment, right. To prove that you have the assets that you need to have, whatever it is, like 40 times the monthly rent you have in your bank account. You meet this random broker out in front of a house one time, like, cool, just send me your like whole financial history, your pay stubs, your whatever else, because they need to prove that when they lease you the space, you can actually make the rent payments. They're not going to have to kick you out and find somebody else and lose all that revenue. As your knowledge proof would let them just go ask a question like, does this person have $100,000? It would return yes, mathematically verified, and they wouldn't learn anything else about you. And so I think it's just a really interesting privacy primitive that will be baked into Web3 and the regular internet and kind of just everything as they get uh, kind of cheaper and faster and easier to build with over time. But I think probably zooming out one layer, just shifting from the assumption that you are you have to make this trade-off between privacy and convenience to this uh, kind of opt-in model where you can requisition your data as needed and it doesn't feel any more inconvenient or clunky to do that. I think that's probably where this is headed, where hopefully you own the stuff that you own. You can get permission where it's needed. It all happens as easily as signing in to you know, anything with your Google account. I think that's where a lot of this is, is going on the privacy and identity side. I hope so. I, you know, For all of us, I don't think we realized 15 years ago that when we put all of our information, identity, and uh, things online, how much value it had. But now we do. And now I think we understand how much value it has and the underlying infrastructure that brings that value back to us and individuals, I think is a incredible and powerful shift that I'm excited about. Totally. I'm, I'm not a privacy hawk by any stretch. Like I ignore those things that I get when my password has been stolen and like, I'm not going to lift a finger for extra privacy most of the time. So like, it's not even like an idealistic perspective there, but to your point, like there is just value in the stuff that we've given away for, for free. And to the extent that you're able to actually kind of capture some of that, uh, without again, any more inconvenience, I think that's, that's a really valuable thing. Incredible. Thank you so much, everyone. Please go read this piece on decentralization over at notboring.co. And, you know, these are the conversations that I just personally enjoy having, asking the things that we don't know. I love when our answer is like, I don't really know yet. Um, and that's the space we're trying to have here at Mempool. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone listening for your time and uh, get in touch with us at X XMTP Labs. I'm Shane Mack on Twitter. And thanks for listening.